This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Clues that come to you. True crime and the makers of Shaker Heights. Anti-vax cemetery prowling. And occult wine. Ken, do you know anything about kitties? I might. But do you know about magical kitties? I know everything. Everything about Magical Kitties Save the Day, a new RPG for gamers of all ages. But, you know, young ones in particular. A perfect intro to the hobby. You mean perfect? I do not. Like the title says, you're Magical Kitties. Every Magical Kitty has a human. Every human has a problem. In Magical Kitties Save the Day, you use your magical powers to solve problems and... Save the day! You all live in a hometown that's filled with foes like witches, aliens, and hyper-intelligent raccoons. They make human problems worse, so the kitties go on adventures to stop them and help the humans. The super simple but elegant rule system puts the emphasis on storytelling and puts the dice in the players' hands, not the GM's. And it supports a setting and characters that players are familiar with and love from the start. When you open the box for Magical Kitties Save the Day, sitting right on top is a copy of Magical Kitties and the Big Adventure. A play graphic novel adventure. Within moments of opening it, kiddos can create their magical kitty and go on an amazing adventure that also teaches them how to play the game. Run Magical Kitty Save the Day for kids as young as six years old. And for everyone else who loves kitties. A great game for kids to start running on their own with plenty of tools and guidance for first-time GM. If you've been looking for a way to introduce your friends and family to role-playing games, Magical Kitty Save the Day is the perfect game to do it. Do you mean perfect? I also do not. Pick up your copy at atlas-games.com. You are cute. You are cunning. You are fierce. You are magical kitties, and it's time to save the day. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut. And, uh... Well, Robin and I are just settled in the... Holy crap, here comes a guy with a, a black bird wrapped up in newspaper. Oh, he's dead. That's awful. How does how does that even... Oh, okay. here comes a dame, Robin. Oh. I, and it's a dame that would make a bishop kick a hole in a stained glass window or but so. The guy with the bird is just the instigating incident. But the dame is obviously like a second clue and we haven't even done anything yet. We haven't... We just... We've literally barely gotten the bourbon out of our desk drawer. That's, uh, that's quite the uh, thing to happen here at the sparse yet manly San Francisco offices of the Gaming Hut, apparently, Robin, we're flung into a mystery, and often, as you point out, in mystery forms that are not role-playing games, it is surprisingly common for core clues, information that leads to a new scene, to come to the investigator. How do we do this in Gumshoe and in other lesser mystery games without feeling that players have lost agency or are being led around by the nose, railroaded, etc., etc.? In other words... Why don't role-playing gamers want a dame with legs that would make a bishop kick a hole in a stained glass window to come into their door? I, I feel like maybe is there a is there a bigger problem we have to solve, or <laughs> should we just stick to the mystery one? Right. Well, often you know the uh, the clue does not come in because if the clue comes in the form of a new person mm-hmm. who barges through the door and is interesting to talk to, I think that's 
even in your intro, Ken, you're thinking the wheels are turning. You're answering questions. Uh, there, there, are, there is no off them. position on the genius switch, Robin, as yes. you know. And so uh, that is one way to make a clue that is provided to you uh, rather than having you going to get the clue be fun and interesting and challenging. And you maybe don't stop to even think that since somebody came through the door, it was a new person and you had to sort of decode them in some way and figure out what was going on with them. So the question, uh, mm, you know, when those they, legs would barely make a bishop kick a tiny hole in the rude screen. I don't like it. Yeah. And so you're not sure what to do with that information or where it goes. You just know that it moves you on to something else. And I think that example, you know, which is basically the time honored, you know, person gives you an assignment, except they're doing it maybe in scene two or three, and mm -hmm. you are probably feel more free to possibly reject them as a patron because it's the instigating instant has already instigated. Right. And so that's probably the best answer is make sure that when you're presenting the clue, when you're throwing the clue at them, that you're throwing it in the form of some other choice or challenge. And so uh, the choice with the person who shows up is, how do I figure out this person? How do I treat them? Do I trust them or not? There's a whole bunch of choices in that scene. So that doesn't feel railroady. It doesn't feel like, you know, you've just been, you know, told to go in a given place and so forth. But not all clues in mystery forms take that tack, for example, you know, and I feel that this is sort of a often a, a cheat in a, a mystery novel, particularly that if there's too many people just showing up to drop information on the detective, I do feel that is a little sloppy and also kind of a sign that the uh, writer is losing interest in the mystery <laughs> and is, as often happens in contemporary mystery uh, series. So, you know, even on the written page, you want to avoid doing it. But there are times when the writer, uh, and this happens more in TV, and you, you notice it less because, you know, a call comes in, there's been another murder. Right. Or, you know, somebody uh, picked this guy up on the on the I-95, and he was uh, muttering in Aramaic. So we figured that we should call on you, the Aramaic squad, uh, to deal with it. The Aramaic mutterer-whisperer. I'm on the case. Yeah. And so that also just sort of immediately takes you to the next clue. It's set up. It's part of the idea that, you you know, that you have contacts and they come to you. And I think that's also, again, uh, that automatically poses a question well, how do we approach the, you know, the Aramaic whisper? But you pointed out, Ken, that there's like in Lovecraft, there's a, a scene where someone literally trips over a rock with a clue tied to it. Yeah, right. He's he's just hanging out in the museum and he picks up a rock and the clue is wrapped around it in a newspaper. So, you know, the, you know, all the way back to Sherlock Holmes, maybe even before Sherlock Holmes would often get clues by, you know, it would show up in the newspaper. He'd say, oh, I see that, you know, Lord such and such is up to things. Well, that's the information I needed. And then he hides it from Watson because he's a jerk and we find out much later. But that is sort of the, you know, again, if you're in a world where newspapers are common or understood, they come to your, your uh, headquarters, your house every day, there's going to be information in them. That's often going to move things along. And the player may feel, well, I was handed that, but on the other hand, that you can't cavil at that. You can't say that's unrealistic that you got a newspaper. Now, you're in the geology museum, spend a point of notice, the core clue is wrapped around a rock. That is a little unsubtle. But yes. in Lovecraft, I want to briefly take a side. The writer is that it works because the whole message of the story is that once you start learning about Cthulhu, his evidences press in on you. And so, stumbling over that newspaper around a rock 
is actually scary more than it is hilariously on the nose. Because it's like, how did that happen? What had to happen to get a newspaper from New Zealand all the way to Patterson, New Jersey, for Francis Wayland Thurston of Boston to find? That's that's a lot of moving pieces, and they're all part of the cult somehow machinating. They're all part of Cthulhu making things happen. And again, if you are in a game where there is a larger supernatural or existential threat uh, that is changing the information space of the world, clues that show up. I guess the other uh, version of make them challenging, make them interesting, uh, make them a dilemma is make them scary, make them information they didn't want, <laughs> yeah. you know, or or just the fact that you got it. Yeah. You know that Cthulhu is coming toward you as you're coming toward him. Mm-hmm. Uh, make a stability roll. Yeah, or, right. Yeah. Uh, and so there you go. There's a challenge. There's a threat. And so you're introducing a, you know, a level of hazard. Mm-hmm. Uh, the same can be true if you want you know, a uh, a letter to show up in a non-supernatural environment that has a clue in it. Well, it comes with a mail bomb. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I think that's a, a great solution, you know, that uh, and you can think of your genres and think of different equivalents of that so that uh, the two guys with guns are too busy to kick in your door. They'll send a mail bomb. Right. You get the information uh, beamed to you, uh, but it's beamed to you from an alien ship. Uh, from like a hostile uh, species. And so right. it's like, is this a trick? What do we do about this? And so, you know, uh, do we fall for it? What's going on here? So that, because that's the whole point of a clue is you're supposed to be more focused on the danger it pulls you in toward. And also, you know, what's the next question? Yeah. So that the other additional thing that you want to put in context is the thing that feels, again, like you're not being just sort of uh, clunked on the head uh, with information or led from one thing to the other. It is hard to do, and we've talked about this more specifically, the sort of timed adventure where, uh, you know, there's going to be six people are going to be killed over the course of the weekend in this country house. And you want to make sure that the players don't just feel like they're twiddling their thumbs waiting for those things to happen. So you may also, you know, create side mysteries and things. So that's a related point that we've covered before that I just wanted to note for uh, completeness's sake. Another way to make the core clue feel good as opposed to hampering or agency defying is have it come as a reward. Uh, that's often, you know, in, in my games, when my players have, my the player characters have reached a certain level of notoriety or power or influence in the world, people start giving them things because they either want to buy them off or they want their help or they want to recruit them to their team or whatever. And often those things are come in the form of information or actionable items. So it can be, oh, you're obviously, you know, great strugglers against Cthulhu. Finally, you can take this cursed egg off me and they give it to them. And it's like, great, my problems are solved now. Thanks a lot. And the cursed egg, you know, it's everything else that we talked about, but it's also reward for their action. So even if it's not a cursed egg, even if it's just knowledge of what the weird lights in the, in the mountains are doing, it's because the mountain man, just like in Lovecraft has heard of the, of the characters investigations and what a good job they've done in those other cases. And he writes them and he says, Hey, I know that you guys solved those haunted house problems and fixed that business down at the seashore. I've got some weird lights in the mountains. What do you make of it? And if it comes as a reward and is, coded as a reward in context, often players will be happier to pick it up because they'll say, well, yeah, that makes sense. We are kind of badass. I understand that every weirdo in the mountains is, you know, now going to write to us. Right. And you can flip that on its head. And also acceptable is the information as debt. 
that, you know, the sleazy organized crime guy who runs the casino says, uh, you know, well, I just happen to have heard this thing and I heard you're poking around and I took pity on you. If it's sort of a film noirish, whether it's contemporary or, or literal 30s, 40s, uh, it's very much in genre for the semi-hostile character to kind of be a jerk to you all, mm-hmm. <laughs> while you're given the information. And then they say, well, now I, now I owe uh, Golden Pete a favor and uh, nobody likes that. And so, again, that's introducing a possible future plot development that might be picked up later. So it's your, if you're laying pipe for something else that also sort of obscures the here, have the clue mm-hmm. a moment, but also the fact that do we, do I want to be in debt to him, you know, or introducing the other question again, why is he doing this? What's, what's his agenda? And so it's all a matter, I think of making sure that the, that the clue that you're pushing toward the uh, players you know, gives them a clue to something else that gives them a question, gives them a choice, gives them danger. And uh, I think, I think, can am I summing up? It sounds like this is a summing up. Yes. What happens? I've forgotten in this mystery. So, oh, I know what happens when we sum up. We go off to another hut. Dracula is not a novel. We know this. It's the after-action report of a failed British intelligence attempt... To recruit a vampire, yeah, yeah, we've been through all this. And the Dracula dossier director's handbook has more secrets, more dangers, more mysteries... For players and directors to explore together, we did a year's worth of ads about it. But it doesn't have Varna. It doesn't have the Ring of Dracula either, or 13th Age-style icons, or bibliomancy. Or a Hand of Glory, or Red Mercury, or hard-won advice and actual play reports. If only someone could gather up all that material that you and Gareth wrote after the fact. Someone has. You made Gar do it, didn't you? We've assembled. Gar has assembled. The cuttings from the dossier have been assembled into a 50-page PDF. Available free with a special offer from the Pelgrane store. Just buy a print copy of the Director's Handbook standalone. Or the Dracula Dossier Core Bundle, the Director's Handbook and Dracula Unredacted in print. Or the Dracula Dossier Starter Kit Bundle, the Knight's Black Agent's Core Book, the Director's Handbook, and Dracula Unredacted in print. Get 25% off any of those print bundles, plus the PDF versions and the cuttings from the Dossier PDF entirely free with the code VAMP2021. And don't worry, original Kickstarter backers, the Cuttings PDF will mystically appear in your Pelgrane store bookshelves without further expenditure. Do nothing, Kickstarter backers. All others use code VAMP2021 for plenty of savings and lots of cuttings. This is going to be a very special episode because we have uh, not just one, but two combo segments. And our first combo segment is a team-up between the Architecture Hut and the Crime Blotter. And this is inspired by beloved Patreon backer Joshua Randall, who says, You, meaning you can, have alluded a few times to the introductory adventure in Trail of Cthulhu, the Kingsbury Horror. While I would not dare dispute Ken's self-assessment of his work, as a longtime Shaker Heights resident, I must ask... How were the torso murders related to the no-doubt potent geomancy of the Van Swearingen brothers who built Shaker Heights? So, Ken, uh, there's a number of things to unpack for the non-Clevelanders among us. And uh, let's see, there's the torso murders and there's Shaker Heights. Why don't you start with the quotidian? 
and move mm-hmm. toward the horrific. Tell us about Shaker Heights. All right. Uh, Shaker Heights is a, uh, basically, it was a planned housing development. It was built by the Van Swearingen brothers, as Joshua asks or mentions, I guess, whatever. Morris Pacton, O.P. Van Swearingen, and Mantis James. First of all, imagine naming your kid Mantis. <laughs> Even in 1881, that had to have been a moment, right? <laughs> well, Cicada was a family name, but yeah. uh, not everybody liked it. So, so people are like, well, why didn't the, the, why did the Swearingen, Van Swearingen brothers never marry? Well, their names were Oris and Mantis. I feel like, We've explained so much of this story right now. Anyway, MJ and OP were uh, brothers, not twins, but they were almost always seen in each other's company. They you never... mean that Oris Paxson and Mantis James referred to themselves with initials instead of their actual full yeah, names? Yeah, wild. Weird. Huh. This is getting more mysterious as we go. More mysterious by the minute. But their uh, father had been an engineer. He'd served in the Civil War. He'd left them a certain amount of money. They immediately set about vastly increasing it mostly by real estate speculation and then by railroad speculation. And uh, the Shakers, of course, were a American uh, mystical sect, most famous for their refusal to reproduce and their lovely hand-carved furniture. And as often, when a sect refuses to reproduce, a lot of their land gets put up for sale. <laughs> and in this case, they had settled on the heights, the hills, east of Cleveland over the last, you know, a couple of few generations, although no generations for Shakers. The uh, vans buy the land is circa 1905, 1906. They start buying it. They're going to build a brand new development for rich people to live. Uh, they've, they, they, like many of us, have noticed that rich people have more money and therefore should be catered to uh, by people who want money. So they, uh, they build the property out as a uh, little development, and then it becomes incorporated in 1912. By 1931, it's an actual, it's an actual city. But the trouble with Shaker Heights is it does not connect to downtown Cleveland at all. So if you're a rich person in the Cleveland area, and this was before the question was why, um, if you're a rich person in the Cleveland area, you had to go to work downtown. You couldn't just leave it all to your man of business. That was no way to stay a rich person. Yes, you had remonstrations to make. Exactly. And so they start buying up land in what's called the Kingsbury Run, which is an old prehistoric riverbed that sort of arcs through the middle of Cleveland's east side, thinking that if they can connect it all up, they'll be able to build a uh, interurban streetcar line that will run from Shaker Heights to downtown. And there's a lot of machinations involved here, including buying an entire railroad company just to get its right-of-way, which they had actual railroad tracks that ran from New York to Cleveland, and they thought, well, that's all we need is just that little bit, but we're going to have to buy the whole railway for it. And then they team up with all the other traction companies to build a massive downtown terminal for all the trains to go to, which they coincidentally will own, and their new Cleveland Interurban Railroad will go right to it. And so... Suddenly, Shaker Heights becomes a super attractive place to live uh, because now it's connected to literally everywhere. You could get on your interurban from Shaker Heights, write it down into the terminal tower, and then get on the B&O or the Chicago Railway and be off to an even bigger, more exciting city than Cleveland. Right. And uh, Joshua did say geomancy. Mm-hmm. So let's just take a moment to contemplate a a tower that is also a transportation hub, the a new beating heart of the city that you've created that everybody has to go yes. through. And, uh, and we'll get back to that. Right. Because, uh, now. And, and a tower that has to be very sensitive or not sensitive rather to vibes 
because you uh, are running a train station under it and you can't have it falling over. So it's already got to be taking in all those vibes. They had to uh, plant it deep into the mother bedrock of uh, the Cleveland area. So that's our architecture hut part Mm -hmm. uh, for the moment. Now let's slide on over to the grislier crime blotter part. Uh, You already heard the word torso murders. You know, this isn't going to be pleasant. (laughs) So, Ken, the version of this that people want to hear is... Is that the torso murders are at least 12 victims, uh, unless you're one of those people that says there were lots of torso murders happening, and there's not one murderer, but the MO seems to back up the the fact that there are probably 12 victims. Seven men, five women. Some of them have been weirdly weathered as if they'd been uh, put in chemical baths. Right. And this is from uh, September of 35 to August August of 38. 38, Yes. And they uh, often beheaded, not always, but certainly often limbs scattered about other mutilations, which we shan't go into. Only two of the victims were ever identified. And both of them were sort of fringe characters. They were uh, bullies and pimps and sex workers from the edge of society. One of them might have been a sailor was because he was known as the tattooed man. He had many, many tattoos and they thought, could he be a sailor, a transient come through Cleveland? We don't know. No one ever identified any of these people. In many cases, as I say, their uh, heads were missing. In other cases, their heads were badly damaged by the acid or the uh, chemicals that they were right. washed in. And of course, it's it's very much a part of serial killer MO to focus on uh, people who they can access and uh, dispose of without without anyone uh, missing them, without anyone missing them. Right. Or who are desperate enough to follow someone into their black car uh, to take them off to some mysterious destination on the edge of town. Of those 12 canonical victims, five of them were found in the Kingsbury run, including the first two, which is why people called it the Kingsbury horror or the Kingsbury murderer, the Kingsbury butcher uh, before there got to be so many of them that they, use the broader term. Three and a half of the victims were found in the Cuyahoga River. Two and a half of them were found along the lakefront, including two of them dumped under the window of safety director of Cleveland, Elliot Ness, who had general authority to investigate the crimes, although it was not uh, contra sort of the romanticized version. He's not out there hunting the butcher. He's asking the cops, why aren't you hunting the butcher harder? Right. And this is after his bigger Yes, this is after he has beaten Capone. He he basically takes that cred and takes it to Cleveland to become their safety director. And what he really wants to do, in fairness to Elliot Ness, is not hunt torso murderers. What he wants to do is fix Cleveland's traffic situation. Like, he finally introduces crosswalks against gigantic opposition and timed streetlights so that people are just smashing into each other all the time. That's really his mission in life. Yes. People forget the incredible mass chaos that resulted with the introduction of the automobile, and then decades later, yeah. uh, rules to govern automobiles. Yeah. And then one of them was the found in the Big Creek, uh, which is far southwest of the city, and that one was not as mutilated, and they think maybe the murderer might have been actually doing the crimes out in this remote stretch of Big Creek. But as most people notice, oh, this is all death by water. This is all that Elliot, uh, T.S. Elliot, not Elliot Ness foolishness with, you know, the wasteland. And what is a bigger wasteland than the Kingsbury Run, which by the time of these murders is full of hobo jungles. There's maybe a 100,000 hobos and tramps 
living in what was the industrial heart of Cleveland and still is because again, it was cheap, terrible land. So that's where you would build all the horribly dangerous factories and you would put those there. So if they blew up, well, it didn't hurt the city. It just, you know, killed a bunch of hobos and that's fine. Now I gather there's also some sort of outlier uh, murders as well that may or may not be connected to this case. Yeah, there are depending on who you believe. Um, for example, the sheriff, uh, a guy named Peter Marillo, who was actually trying to catch the murderer and did not do it himself, believed that there was a series of murders in Newcastle, Pennsylvania, uh, six bodies, many of them beheaded, found in Mahoning Swamp in 1923 and 1924. There was a uh, another beheaded and mutilated torso body that was found in Kingsbury Run in 1929 before they knew that they had a bunch of murders going on. He's found very near the canonical number six uh, body. Uh, there's a, a, a headless body called the Lady in the Lake that was found at the Euclid Beach, which one of other victims was found at. And there's another headless body in Newcastle in a boxcar in 1936. And then three headless bodies were found in boxcars in nearby McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania, which made Marillow believe that the killer was riding the railroads back and forth. And that's, you know, that he possibly had been killing across a great stretch of the Midwest. We may have been dealing with an Andre Chikatilo of Cleveland or of uh, the Midwest rather than just one city bound figure, which right. is the normal process of assumption that people who are talking about this case now, they are happy to bring up all the other murders, but except for, I think one modern scholar, they mostly say, well, Peter Marillo was driven nuts by the, by his failure to catch anybody. And he just rode the trains dressed as a hobo in desperation. And right. I don't think that's fair. I, I think that given the state of forensics in the 1930s and the states of those bodies, Peter Marillo did the best he could. It's just that no one could really do anything about it. Right. And if your assignment is now to fuse Crime Blotter and Architecture Hut, the aforementioned railroad being a possible pivotal part of the murders seems to be a starting point for, right. for that. Because, uh, you know, what is a, uh, a railroad track but a ley line that has physical substance. Right. A conduit, if you will, for all manner of energies, including murder energies. If you're attempting to resacralize or desecrate, I suppose, if you're, you know, a proper person, uh, desecrate these energies and turn them to evil and, and horror. Um, what better way to do it than to commit them at various, uh, important times and points along the railway? And of course, Kingsbury Run is very clearly some sort of geomantic influence. On Cleveland, and you could either say that it is, you know, Cleveland's dolorous blow. It's the prehistoric wound the city received, and that's why Cleveland can never heal. That's why the, you know, the Browns will always be terrible, whatever. It is because of this psychic wound left by Kingsbury Run. And then, of course, it attracted not just murderers and not just weirdo brothers railroads, but also, you know, John D. Rockefeller and Andrew Carnegie and all the robber barons who built their most horrible, dangerous, literal, you know, infernal mills down there in the in the bottom of it. And so even if Kingsbury Run didn't begin as a negatively aspected uh, feng shui uh, feature, it certainly had become one by the 1920s and 30s. Right. And you can't help but notice the conjunction of the uh, torso murders with the demises of the brothers. So the right. first canonical murder is September 35 and uh, Mantis uh, dies in December 35 and Oris dies in November of 36. Right. So that's within the span of them. So in fact, this might well have been, you know, a, a magical 
bank shot where they would, you know, there were killings of victims of opportunity, but the real victim of the mystical attack is the uh, is the Van Swearingen's. Right, is the owners and builders of those railroads. Yeah. Right. And so the question then would be, uh, were any of these other robber barons, you know, who benefited? Uh, could this have been, you know, commissioned uh, by one of their business rivals? By some uh, railroad king of the 1930s and 40s. Averill Harriman did it and then skipped off to Moscow to be FDR's uh, ambassador. I, I don't think you can rule Averill Harriman out, despite the fact that I've literally just thought it up. <laughs> Well, you know, it's it's the it's these inspirations of the moment that must definitely be true. Right. The canonical torso murderer that they didn't get is a guy named Dr. Francis Sweeney. He was a rich and well-connected doctor, uh, which would have given him, in theory, the surgical skill to chop up all these bodies. He'd done a ton of surgeries in World War One. As a result, he became a deranged uh, alcoholic suffering very badly from PTSD. And while that is not going to turn you into a serial killer, <laughs> I would say virtually any of the times, it certainly, you know, if you're already on the edge, it will unhinge you further. And Francis Sweeney committed himself to an asylum in 1938, and that's when the murders stopped in Kingsbury Run. And so uh, he also sent mean postcards to Elliot Ness and his family. So Francis Sweeney... He failed, apparently failed two uh, polygraph tests administered by Elliot Ness's team. And, uh, the polygraph guy said, Ness, you've got the man. And he says, sadly, we can't arrest him because his cousin was a area legislator who had been hammering Elliot Ness for his failure to catch the, uh, torso killer. And so Ness says, we have no proof of this guy. We just have one witness who described kind of his head and kind of his car. This would be laughed out of any court in the land. We can't do anything. And then Sweeney, the myth goes, had himself committed to become invulnerable to Ness's future prosecution, feeling that he had won. Now, that argues that the McKee's Rocks cases have nothing to do with this, that they're, you know, uh, chaff. So pays your money and takes your your chances. But obviously, if uh, Francis Sweeney is connected, he could be the tool used by Averill Harriman or whatever other uh, 1930s, 40s rail magnate you uh, wish to implicate. Right. And I think in general, that whenever there's an unsolved series of serial killings, it's look for a, a shady doctor right. uh, on the theory that uh, only doctors can chop up bodies. Right. That no one has ever, you know, boned a chicken. Only a doctor could do that. Elliot Ness also may have solved the case accidentally. At the end of August, he takes a huge number of Cleveland cops and uh, sheriff's deputies in, or actually, I guess it's just Cleveland cops because the sheriff wanted nothing to do with this stupidity um, into the Kingsbury run into the hobo jungles and just starts burning down hobo camps and arresting everyone who, you know, acts up, which I assume is most of the hobos because the cops have come in and burning your house. And then he rounded them all up. Everyone that he possibly could nail on any other crime, he sent off to another city to be their problem. And most of them then got the sort of, you know, uh, Mulholland Drive warning where it's like, you can go anywhere you want. There's a lot of railroads leading out of Cleveland. We suggest you take one of those. And then the murders did stop. So if the murderer was a hobo among hobos committing hobo murders to desacralize the rails because they, as all hobos are everywhere, are mad at railroad bulls, then maybe that's what he did. But I feel like if in, in these days, Robin, in these in this political climate, if you're going to blame someone for a series of mystical geomantic murders, isn't it better to blame a uh, Democrat millionaire than a hobo? I feel. 
Yeah, or, you know, Cthulhu. Yeah, whatever. One or the other. Uh, Well, once we once again blame Cthulhu, it's time (laughs) for us to uh, move on up to uh, what is undoubtedly a a calm... Oh, wait a minute. I'm looking at the script. This is not calmer or normaler. Well, well, let's, uh, let's have a commercial. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Keep the clues coming, and by clues we mean essential financial support, by joining such seasoned Patreon backers as... Chris McCarthy. Chuck Cooley. Dan O'Hanlon. Daniel Gill. And Eric Jeppesen. The chattering of the teletype. The announcements blared over the tannoy tell us that once more we are entering a hut that has been ripped from the headlines. And uh, our specific headline, I don't think this is technically a headline, Robin. I think you do- dove very deep into Twitter to find this. It's, it's, it's been covered. There's news stories. There's a news story, it's he a said, thing that's providing no it's links or data. Up, and it's a perfect scenario hook. I, I believe there's, I'm hearing quibbling on the other end of the line, and I won't have it. You won't have it. All right. Well, here's the topic we're quibbling about. Let's let the listeners decide whether this is a headline. Anti-vaxxers are roaming cemeteries looking for Bluetooth signals from the recently vaccinated dead. What could possibly go wrong? And Robin, this is your baby. What, what say you um, uh, change its diaper? <laughs> this is a baby public. I have no responsibility for, of course. So, uh, I, for, so first of all, this is a, a testament to the uh, the market for new things to feed uh, conspiratorial ideation. We uh, won't get into the whole question of whether the ideation fuels the disinformation or the disinformation feeds the ideation. That's an essay topic. But uh, definitely this fits into the whole, uh, you know, exploration we've had of, you know, whether, you know, anti-vaxxers and their allies are part of a new uh, sort of, they're the new Gnostics or mm-hmm. the new witch hunters. In this case, they're kind of both uh, because, uh, so the first level of nut bar here is the idea, of course, the widespread anti-vax idea that somehow there are microchips in the vaccine and that uh, shadowy uh, forces, the, the all-powerful witches who are controlling uh, the economy and making it bad, have essentially used the vaccine to turn us into Bluetooth devices. Uh, so not only do you have people getting on planes and turning on, uh, you know, checking for Bluetooth devices, and they're on a plane and, you know, 16, 24 different devices light up. And 
you know, instead of thinking, oh, look, that's 24 people who don't turn their Bluetooth off the way we used to supposed to have to do that when we got onto planes mm -hmm. on their devices, they think those aren't devices. Those are people. Those are people who are vaccinated. They're Bluetooth devices. And if you take that one step further, uh, as was initially done by a lady in Polynesia, French Polynesia, who posted a video in French of herself on a beach wearing a uh, palm frond or not palm frond, but leaf frond headdress. She's just wearing leaves on her head, which shows that she's a proper authority, you know, not right. one of these pointy headed academics, but no, she's anti-authority. You, if you're going to wander around graveyards listening for signals from the dead, you want a maynad in charge, yes. I feel. Yes. And so uh, she was near a cemetery. And again, you do the thing where you pull up your phone and look at all these different Bluetooth devices. And obviously, again, basic deduction tells us that the most likely reason for that is that uh, the uh, people uh, in the cemetery who have had who have died after being vaccinated and presumably, you know, in this uh, alternate belief system, perhaps killed by being vaccinated. Well, now they're still giving off Bluetooth signals. So the way that you prove the whole conspiracy, people, is you go to cemeteries and you open up your laptop or your uh, your phone, whatever mobile device, and then you freak out about it. So this uh, has you know uh, been powerful enough that there's all sorts of people all around the world doing this. Uh, we won't say it's a large number of people. We don't need that in order to have a scenario hook. Uh, but it is kind of perverse genius because uh, it gives people an activity to do in order to interact with their paranoia. Yeah, that's that's what everyone wants. Is it, you don't want to just sit at home being paranoid. Anyone can do that. Q people can do that. What you want to do is have a, a fun activity. Right. Uh, because, you know, all the more dopamine. And mm -hmm. if you're doing it at night in a cemetery, that's transgressive. Nobody wants you doing that except you uh, and your other paranoids all around the world who's, uh, who are going to watch the videos that you upload. And so that's what's going on. But this, of course, to the creative horror scenario is a big gift. So the obvious thing here to do is just it's the cold open. Uh, mm -hmm. It's, you know, if this was, if X-Files was still on, uh, if Supernatural was still on the air, this would definitely be the pre-credits victims get killed sequence right. where people are creeping into the cemetery with their uh, devices. Uh, they see a bunch of things light up. Uh, but of course, it's not what they think it is. It's something else in the cemetery and then they get eaten. Mm -hmm. And that I think is, you know, right there. Uh, you've done your job as, as a scenario writer to have that be the instigating incident because it'll give you all sorts of, uh, you know, red herringy stuff to investigate where, the, you know, the, the victims are crackpots who are in touch with other crackpots and have great extensive amounts of uh, crackpot uh, writing that you have to sift through. And then, of course, it, it's ghouls or right, yeah. something else or vampires or whatever. Um, I, I think that's, again, terrific setup, great opener and the notion that the crack pottery is entirely unrelated to the uh, monster is good fun. But I feel like in a scenario, you might want to have them point more in the same direction, which is not to say that your scenario should be about, you know, uh, Bill Gates having put 5G in everybody's blood. Your scenario should be that unbeknownst to them, there is, in fact, some, I mean, this, and this goes way back to the, you know, before the 1920s, this is the 1880s, people are saying ghosts are an electromagnetic phenomenon. They are a specific charge with a specific frequency. You can map it on a, a spectrum chart. You can detect it with uh, EEGs. 
plenty of ways to detect ghosts as EM. This is in standard ghost hunting. Yeah. It's in Ghostbusters. It's in Supernatural. Right. It's basic. Everything, you know, changes or happens for a reason. And now, how do we detect certain frequencies of electromagnets? Well, we, you know, put our phone and say, look for open Wi-Fi. And we find a bunch of networks. Many of them networks that have garbage names. Uh, the sort of things that maybe a, a ghost might say. You know, no person is ever going to say, what's 44? That's a ghost. That's a ghost talking to you. And mean ghosts will say things like, you know, free, cool Wi-Fi. And you're like, ooh, that's fun. And then when you do that, the ghosts are uh, haunting your computer or haunting your uh, cell phone. And the notion that either ghosts have always also broadcast in Wi-Fi frequencies and they just didn't have equipment to detect it until now, which is the one that I like, or that something has changed in the afterworld and now ghosts are suddenly broadcasting in Wi-Fi frequencies is, you know, both of those are interesting. I mean, I like the, you know, as a, as, as an old school ghost hunter, I like that they were always doing it, but I have to say that, you know, something happened in 2005, 2006, some massive necromantic ritual, and suddenly ghosts are all, uh, you know, awake and broadcasting in Wi-Fi. That also interests me. And so that becomes the thing is that, Sure, the guys wandering around in the graveyard are idiots who think that they're, you know, finding proof of, of Bill Gates' hellish plans against us. But what they're actually finding is the local necromancer's hellish plans against us. And he's like, well, on the one hand, you know, strangers stumbling into my plan. On the other hand, more dead bodies. Yeah. Good for me. Yes. And, you know, this uh, a, a contemporary necromancer uh, knows how Bluetooth works, mm-hmm. uh, knows devices. So he sets up a bunch of devices. And in, in this case, you know, some people... This has been fueled to the extent that it needs to be fueled, which it doesn't, by <laughs> wags out there have been turning their Bluetooth devices and renaming them Pfizer and Moderna. <laughs> this is standard ghost behavior as well, I'll point out. Right. Well, the ghosts, they're dead. They're not doom scrolling. Right. You know, they're already the doom scroll, but a living necromancer could easily uh, think, oh, what can I do to lure people to the cemetery whose uh, disappearance could have all sorts of different reasons behind it uh, that won't necessarily point to me uh, to feed my ghouls or to uh, become components in my, you know, whatever you railroad desacralizing torso experiment. Just yes, to pick exactly. something random. And so let's attract people to the uh, cemetery by spreading this rumor. And so that also gives you your thing where the premise actually connects to the uh, solution of, of the mystery. Uh, and so this could be, you know, just, in the world of Esoterror, of course, you just want to continue to stoke fears and conspiracy theories. So you could be doing that just to provoke a, an emanation, a breakthrough of the outer dark in a cemetery. Uh, so you wouldn't necessarily be, uh, you know, there will be demons who will eat people. But, you you know, you're not necessarily, you know, trying to arrange that per se. It's just sort of create a tear in the membrane that they can uh, come through. Uh, so you, you can have... Someone who's sort of knowingly working a psyop as well as, uh, or uh, rather as an alternate to the necromancer who's just, you know, uh, stumbled onto a, a opportunity to lure victims. In a Knights Black Agents game, the vampire that you're hunting, they can be using ghosts to communicate. It's their way of keeping their communications, you know, off the NSA grid is to send it through ghosts and ghosts are their 5g you know ghosts are their 5g and so someone who's stumbling onto the fact that ghosts are emitting 5g signals is actually a threat to the vampires even though they're 
probably a simpleton. And then when the simpleton dies, that's how our people get brought in because it turns out there's an awful lot of chatter on this about these, you know, ghost communications. Edom sends you to go look into it or you're, you know, you're, you're proactively alert to this sort of storyline and you show up and sure enough, this is a, a big piece of the vampire's abilities is that they're able to communicate, you know, through the, the bodies of the dead and the vampire just kills someone and says, tell, you know, Countess Bathory that I will meet her on, you know, uh, you know, on Valpurgis Knock. And then the guy's ghost has to bring that message to uh, Countess Bathory. And now you have a way to monitor it. You have maybe if you can hash out all these signals, you can figure out which are the vampire code messages. And so that gives you a requirement to both infiltrate this community so that you can have access to all the raw signal data that they're getting from cemeteries all around the world, and then also connect those raw data to your source in the NSA or GCHQ who can sift it all, crack it for codes and say, oh, this is the clear messages. Uh, someone's meeting Countess Bathory at Valpurgis knocked. That seems like a, a moment for you. And right. Basically, you're then required to sort of keep this community alive because idiots that they are, they're feeding you this tranche of vampire intel. And then the vampires, of course, if they've got, you know, a big, broad, sprawling conspiracy, they'll say, well, we need to bust this up. And all of a sudden, you know, uh, people on MSNBC go on and say, oh, this is disinformation and very bad. And, uh, and you know, bought off police departments, go hassle people in, in graveyards who are just having some fun with their TikTok. And it, it becomes a whole thing. Uh, and you can make that a front in your vampire war or a side note, depending on how much fun you want to have with that subculture. Right. And if ghosts are Bluetooth devices and uh, have still some semblance of consciousness, if they're not just sort of, uh, you know, blank conduits, uh, mm -hmm. they themselves might try to attract attention toward a concentration of uh, hijacked ghosts in order to bust it up, right? You don't right, want to yeah. be the, the vampire communication network. You know, you you had a job in your first life. This is not what you, being a, a message courier was not what you signed up for. So it may be that, you know, you, the ghosts, are figuring out how to do things and achieve more autonomy. And so you're the ones, you know, and they tried changing the names of the Bluetooth devices to help, I'm a trapped ghost, or save me from vampires, but mm -hmm. nobody did anything. Right. It wasn't until they thought, okay, let's change the names of Pfizer and Moderna, that at least these people will come and attract attention. Attention, of course, in the form of the player characters, and they will bust up this uh, communications network and uh, send us back to our uh, previous rest. And when we've sent ghosts to their previous rest, as Jennifer Love Hewitt taught us every week, that means they've finished their earthly business. And that means we've finished our earthly business, at least in this hut. Hopefully, there will be another hut in our future. Delta Green Iconoclast, a campaign of horrors modern and ancient, brings a team of agents to a scene of terrors 
all too real. Mosul in 2016, held by the self-styled Islamic State in a reign of depraved brutality. From a small base at the Kirkuk airfield, the agents must research the horrors to come and prepare for a harrowing infiltration. ISIL fighters destroy mysterious artifacts. A Delta Green veteran goes rogue. Hidden myths permeate the Battle of Mosul. A demon god beckoned by a bloodthirsty cult. Plus terrifying supplementary material. Rules and guidelines for spying, crime, and backroom deals. New rituals. New tomes. And the dreadful details of a threat to suit all the evils of humanity. Available now in PDF. Or pre-order your glistening hardback slated for October release. And we're back for the second hut team-up of this uh, episode, because this time around, picking up on a uh, hint uh, dropped by Ken in a previous episode, uh, both Friedrich Brownison and Tim Vert have asked the food hut to welcome the consulting occultist in order to talk about occult wine. And, of course, the idea that, that wine has uh, supernatural or otherworldly or metaphysical qualities, the most known, most practiced metaphysical ritual that involves wine, of course, is communion. But we don't call that a cult because it's not a culted. It's right out there as a mainstream religious practice. But one thing that we know from studying the occult is that uh, older religious practices, once they become sort of less known and less obsolete and become associated uh, with powers that are being drawn on by magicians, then they become a cult. So, for example, the kikion, the ritual drink behind the Eleusinian Mysteries, uh, one version of that is a mixture of wine and grated cheese, suggesting that the thing that uh, brings you uh, a static revelation is umami, Ken. Yeah. Uh, other people have suggested ergot in the barley or pennyroyal, which is another thing that you apparently put in Kiki on sometimes. Please do not put pennyroyal in your wine or even on your cheese. I urge you. It's a neurotoxin. Right. And I suppose that uh, if you let your grated cheese sit out long enough, even if it's in wine, that that too could get... Some sort of mold on it. Some kind of funk on it. That would bring you a mystical revelation. But they would often thicken the kikion up with barley, and the barley was ergotized or ergotic at times. Yeah, the Eleusinian mysteries sort of point us to... um, Wine is really overperforms as an occult symbol. As you mentioned, the Eucharist is possibly the most practiced ritual in human history, certainly now. But before that, Dionysus had a little bit of a claim to have the most practiced ritual in human history because drinking a toast, uh, every time you opened a, a play, you, you'd pour off a libation of the gods. Pouring a libation of the gods was done not with water. The gods would not have stood for that. It was done with wine. Right. And the wine was so important that it got its own god, uh, Dionysus, as we know, or Bacchus in Rome, because the wine was so very clearly the blood of the gods, because when you drank it, it was better than anything else that happened to you on earth. Right. <laughs> and, and better than water, because yeah. water could, could pison you. Yeah, exactly. And whereas wine also can pison you, but it pisons you far more excitingly yes. and over a much longer time. And purifies the water as well, which is, you know, so it's a purifying force and it's a metaphor for blood. So right. what more do you need to have a, a potent occult symbol? Exactly. And so once you start, you know, with that, so much of what we talk about as wine can just be refracted back through Dionysus or back through Christianity. And from there, 
armies of occult links go off in all directions. So we're going to sort of be hitting some highlights going through. If you want to see someone taking every aspect of wine as a through line or a metaphor, obviously read Tim Powers' novel Earthquake Weather, which deals with Dionysus's servants, the true kings of California, and what they get up to. It, it completes the trilogy of Last Call and Expiration Date. Not as satisfyingly, I feel, as those two pillars, but uh, it's also the novel that Tim Powers wrote when he was quitting drinking, which I, I think explains a lot about earthquake weather. But it's also adds a sort of a human infusion that maybe other Powers novels don't have. So that said, and that pointed out, we don't get too far into Christianity before other Christians accuse Gnostic Christians of playing silly games, of screwing around with the Eucharist. For example, Epiphanius claims that the Marcosian Gnostics uh, were founded by a fellow named Marcus, who may or may not have been from old Dionysus country, Phrygia, that they would, as part of their Eucharist, turn the wine different colors and make it expand or shrink with basically stage magic. And the Gnostics, uh, the Marcosians, would change their wine from white to red, and you're like, so far, so good, to purple, which is obviously uh, venous blood, is the blood that the oxygen has been taken out of, to azure, to a, a bright cerulean blue to indicate, you know, a whole new divine power. And this would just be good fun, except the, the Marcosians were very big in the Rhone Valley, Robin. They were uh, centered in Lugdunensis. They were in northern Spain. They were centered in southern France. They were, in fact, centered where all of a sudden all of our modern wine country comes right. from. <laughs> well, a Rhone uh, wine is a magical vintage. It or, certainly uh, is. A varietal, I suppose. Right. That, that sort of, you know, playing around with the Eucharist is a common thing, either adulterating it with various uh, horrific ingredients or in some cases, just doing things with the wine that are not approved of in the Roman ritual. Right. Because you're taking the core ritual of Christianity and gaining magical power through your subversion of it or right. turning it on its head. It's the, the power of blasphemy. Exactly. The, the, the same sort of thing powers the old uh, black masses also in France in the 18th century when they would put, guess what, hallucinogens in the wine that they drank at their black masses as right. well as, you know, infant blood and other horrible things. Bring and back to Kikion. We're back to Kikion again, exactly. And the notion that the Eleusinian mysteries are alive in this substrate of the occult is certainly one that occultists like to say. I don't know that anyone necessarily agrees with that, but you can get, you know, all the way uh, Powers has great fun with the Holy Blood, Holy Grail people and saying, no, people just think that's about Jesus' lineage. It's actually about a secret lineage of wine, and all the code is actually referring to wine grafting, and that's good fun. Um, Marsilio Ficino, the great mystic of the Renaissance, who uh, basically translated Plotinus and kicked off Neo-Gnosticism and Neoplatonism in uh, Renaissance thought. He believed that wine was the repository and the embodiment of the solar anima, the spirit of the sun, which he thought was the most important spirit in the world. And that's why Marcelio Ficino had to stay well away from the Vatican, because once more, people are like, you are right, but also you're heretically wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you're uh, actionably wrong. And right. uh, we have a nice little pyre over here for you. Right. We have a, a fun pyre. And then from there, you can get into the sort of the superstitions of wine growers. And of course, they all have zillions of them. Right. Because any agricultural product, you want to keep the witches away from it. Because exactly. that's a main thing witches do is wreck agriculture. Right. That's literally their job. So, for example, in Italy, you had to protect your wine harvest 
And therefore, you know, if you, you know, really had the right connections, you would call upon the Ben and Dante. Uh, they're the good anti-witch shamans that we discussed in episode 133. So you can get the whole lowdown if you uh, dial all the way back to 2015 for that. But basically, you know, they were the, the Jedi of protecting wine from witches in Italy. Uh, but if you didn't have them and, you know, they were expensive, you, they weren't always around, a lesser way of dealing with uh, witches and preventing them from souring your wine, which they would do by peeing in it, which you just want to avoid... That's not even magic. You want to avoid anyone doing that, much less witches, I feel. Yeah, at yeah. any rate, witches. Yeah. Uh, what is magic is that if you put a bowl of water outside your house, that prevents them from coming to your winery and peeing in your wine right. and ruining it. But, of course, that is not as foolproof as having the Benedante do it because someone could kick the bowl and, and knock it over. A cow could do that. Or a dog could come around and, and drink all the water. Or, you know, there could be a storm and the bowl could be knocked over. So... That's just a fallback measure if you can't afford the Benedotti. Yeah, I mean, splash out for the Benedotti. It's absolutely worth it. They bring fennel. Remember, they bring the fennel. <laughs> they, they do bring the fennel. There is a number of different wineries that have a similar superstition. That is the, how will the wine harvest be? Sometimes it's like if you see a dwarf, you, you'll know that you'll have a bad wine uh, vintage. Or, you know, in other cases, you know, if it's uh, on the first day of the grape harvest, you, you should always try to pick it at the new moon. And that's just sort of, you know, generalized superstition. The best one of these I found is that in some German vineyards, there's a white veiled lady who wanders the vineyard and at the beginning of the season. And if it's going to be a bad season, she's weeping and she clutches her keys. Apparently she's carrying keys for some reason. But if it's a good season, Probably keys to the cellar, where who the can say she smiles and she rattles the keys. And uh, that sort of entirely paradoxically unconnected bit of the story is what always makes things smell like genuine folklore to me is if it actually doesn't make any sense. That's, that's your good folklore right there. Right. Telephone has been played over the, over the decades and the mm -hmm. oral history has gone wrong and it was something that made sense, but now it's keys. Right. Or if, or if we were a medieval German winemaker, we'd be like, of course she carries keys. You need that for the Abendgestretzenswoden Schlonen. Yeah, it's, it's the keys of the mayor's office or right, something like something. that. And then there's the uh, French superstition that when you have cut back all the wines, you, you've pruned all the vines and it's uh, winter time, that the leftover knobbly bits of the grapevine look like little angry old men. And you find the one that looks the most like a little angry old man, la visage dans la vigne, the face in the vines, and you chop it off, and you kill that vine right there by chopping the end off of it, and you burn it on a waste place like a hillside, and that will basically be the sacrifice so that winter doesn't kill all of your grapes forever. So you've, you're like, yep, we've you've done a human sacrifice of the old man in the vine, and we've burned him. Now when uh, the spring comes, all of our, our, our vines will come back. Uh, healthy and good, and we don't have to worry about it. And that, of course, takes us all the way back around to Dionysus, right? The sacrificed dying god who is, you know, torn to pieces and then reconstitutes because that's what he does. Right. I, I've been working on uh, for an upcoming Yellow King thing, a thing that sort of fleshes out, at least for the purpose of these scenarios, the mythology of the two sisters of uh, Casilda and Camilla. Mm -hmm. And among their oppositions is that Camilla is the patron of wine and Casilda is the patron of absinthe. Ah. And so the connection between wine and blood makes Camilla the one who's trying to uh, shatter reality through overt brutality and bloodshed. 
and then Casilda uh, through the uh, subtler, more hypnagogic, strange through the green fairy. Through the uh, so she's more about trying to change life into a weird green dream, and uh, Camilla is just uh, creating new weird uh, wine monsters to uh, attack Paris. So uh, that's uh, you know an example of taking all this pre-existing mythology and then grafting it, hear what I said, grafting it onto mm. another created mythology. And so that'll be a big theme of them going through. And that's something that you can carry through all of the settings. So of course, wine is coming back in Paris in 1895 because Burgundy is back after the whole phylloxera problem. And you can continue to have uh, wine in the Continental War. You know, you can bust into a, a cellar and uh, have a little uh, drink up before you have to go back to the front. And then, of course, in uh, Aftermath, the Castanes are probably involved in, you know, weird uh, nonsense involving the wine industry. And uh, today, you can find articles, uh, New Age foodie articles, that show you which varietals of wine to pair with which rituals. Not to use in the ritual, but Mm -hmm. to drink before or assume afterwards. And so, uh, people have gone a little overboard and I think there are probably affiliate links to the wines that you can order, Mm -hmm. but uh, people have gone into quite some uh, detail on that. And so definitely the idea of a wine tasting club that is in fact front for supernatural activity, whether that is Camilla in uh, This Is Normal Now or uh, the return of Dionysus in uh, some other modern horror supernatural thing. There's a, a lot that you can do with that and bring it into scenarios. And there's, um, uh, we should mention, I guess, if we're talking about black masses and scenarios, that Dennis Wheatley, of course, was a uh, from a, a wine merchant from a family of wine merchants. So uh, there's a connection there. I'm sure, I'm morally certain that if you search the history of winemaking, you will find people named Camille involved in it. And that, of course, will be indications that they are sacred to the goddess Camilla in a way. And uh, you can, you know, combine Carcosa and Dionysus because, of course, they both drive you mad. Dionysus appears as a mystical king in the Bacchae and uh, Pentheus uh, refuses to have anything to do with him. And he says, you know, are you sure you're a, a, a man? You seem like a like a bull with horns. And, you know, that's the, you know, are you masked uh, line that uh, Euripides puts in at the, at the beginning of the play where Euripides is sort of, you know, feeling his way towards the Yellow King. And then the women show up and ruin everything, tearing everything to shreds. And that's Camilla and Casilda opening up the madness and the violence. They're making things right by tearing to shreds the people who need to be torn to shreds. Yeah. But that's their perspective at any rate. I don't want Maynard's mad at me is what I'm saying. Yes. You know, that, yeah. And, and Euripides' perspective is, I'm glad that happened to the other people. <laughs> and then, um, you know, there's, uh, you know, the notion of do you accept and or do you reject Dionysus's gifts? And that, of course, is, you know, do you take or have you seen the yellow sign? Do you take the yellow sign? So I feel like the, the Bacchae gives you a great universal joint to map the king in yellow mythos onto good old Dionysus. And certainly uh, Camilla and Casilda, as you point out, physical brutality and mental derangement, the two aspects of Dionysus's worship. Yes. Injury cards and shock cards. Mm -hmm. And so on that note, now that we're uh, uh, grafting Carcosa onto Dionysus, I think we've unleashed a lot of things, Yeah, uh, not just in this segment, but in previous ones. So it's time for us to flee, but uh, I'm pretty sure we'll be back a week from now with more things to release into the uh, thought stream. 
Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagown. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Raise a glass of vino, and by vino we mean essential financial support, by joining such tannic yet sprightly backers as... John Rogers. Ross Ireland. Stephen Hammond. Brian Thomas. And Derek Heimforth. Wear the show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Dispense space opera gaming advice with our latest design, Don't Be a Space Weasel. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. 